Sometimes in life, even though we're fully prepared, even though we've rehearsed everything down to the last minute, things don't go quite as we expect. Just watch the screen for a moment. The good news is that poor unfortunate lady wasn't hurt and she came back on and found the whole thing rather amusing. Have you ever had that kind of experience in life where everything is going okay and you forget the basic thing to hold onto the stick at the end and it ends up flying out of your hand? Today as we are approaching Advent, next week is Advent Sunday, we're journeying through what are some quite unfamiliar texts at times, sometimes a bit more familiar through this prophecy of Micah. And this week, It's about plans. It's about God's plans, the Lord's plan. And um, if you were here last week, Chris was taking us through the first part of chapter 4, which is all about hope and and the last days and the hope that is coming because of what Jesus has done. If you weren't here last week, and I really encourage you to have a listen to that online so we get a sense of flow of the whole book. Micah the prophet, 8th century BC, written sometime before 720. He was writing to two nations. If you're like me, I was like a map, so I know what I'm talking about. Um, he was writing to the, the divided kingdom of Israel and Judah. Israel and Judah, that had been one big country under David and Solomon, get split. There's Israel in the north, which is bigger, sort of inland area, but Judah in the south, which has Jerusalem and the temple in it. And at the time that Micah's writing, it's a bit of a mixed time for both nations because they're getting quite affluent. There's a lot of money around, But at the same time, their spirituality is going downwards. They're in a steep downward spiral of moral and spiritual decline. And sadly, that is a pattern that we often see through history. As affluence grows, people's dependency on God is reduced. And that's what's going on here. And it's into this environment that Micah is called by God to share a particular message. And as you read through the whole book of Micah, you you see that it's a message of hope. There is unbelievable hope there, but there's also judgment. There is also warning that actually sin will not go unaccounted for. As we look at this chunk of chapter 4, what we find is, if you like, a summary of the whole book in a few verses. Now, as Chris mentioned last week, Old Testament prophecy often has multiple fulfillments. So what we will see as we look through these verses is that you get a glimpse of the fulfillment happening to Israel and to Judah. You then get a further big chunk of the fulfillment coming in the ministry of Jesus. But some of it is yet to be. Some of the fulfillment doesn't happen until Jesus returns in glory. Another thing we find reading prophecy is that it's not particularly chronological. You can't read prophecy as if it's history in reverse, as if you're just setting out bit by bit exactly what happens. So Micah sort of paints with broad brushstrokes these themes that God has given him. And we find they sort of come and we have to then unpack what's going on. So as we look through these verses this morning, I want to ask you a question. What is God's plan for your life? What is God's plan for your life? Just reflect on that just for a moment, and then we'll look through the passage.
First thing we see in these verses is a continuation of last week, that God had plans for Israel and for Judah, and they were full of hope. They were a people who'd been chosen by God. They were people set apart by God. They were in covenant by God. They were called to be a light to the other nations, to display God to the countries around them. You know, the good news today is that God has plans for you and for me. That is so countercultural. You know, what's the pervading view that is taught in education today is that we're accidental lumps of atoms and electrons that have been caused by pure chance and have no purpose whatsoever. Not so, God tells us. Absolutely not. We are created as image bearers of our creator. We are designed, hopefully, with purpose. We are called dearly loved. We are unique. We are called chosen in Christ. You know, this is revolutionary, isn't it? We will sing in a few weeks, he who made the starry skies loves you, loves me, and has plans and purposes for our lives. And so we find the hope in this passage. You know, we have great hope, don't we? Not a vague hope. Chris was talking about that this last week. We don't have this kind of vague hope that Jesus might have a plan for us. We have a certain hope, an assurance, because Jesus has come in time and space and died and risen, that actually we can have hope for the future, hope for today and hope for the future. So if you look at verses 6 to 8, these really follow on from the passage we were looking at last week. And they're about the coming reign of the Lord from Zion, from Jerusalem. Now this is not going to be a physical reign, as in a king who's coming to militarily rule over some huge empire. But this is looking forward to the reign of Jesus, the Messiah, Israel's Messiah, who will reign not over the whole earth, but over the whole universe for all eternity. Verses 6 to 7, there is a promise that the lame, the exiles, those driven away will become the gathered remnant, the start of God's new creation. And we see Jesus announcing precisely this message at the beginning of Luke's gospel. Jesus goes to the synagogue in Luke chapter 4, and he unravels the scroll, and he gets to Isaiah chapter 61, and he starts to apply it to himself when he says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. And so we see in Jesus, the hope of Micah is fully realized. And it's the hope that the gospel goes to the weak, to the marginalized, not through might, not through power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. God has a plan for our lives, doesn't he? And it's a plan that is hopeful. It's a plan that, as Nicola was saying, you know those girls who were in that school who were just thinking about sad things? We don't need to think about that. We can think about all that we have in Christ. Have that backdrop of hope. Second thing we find in this passage is redemption. You know, redemption is a word that we tend to either hear in church or with Tesco club card vouchers, and not a lot in between. But it's a word that has this sort of idea of being bought, of being bought back. So redemption, as we look at it in the Bible, is about God paying the price, about buying back his people so that we can live with him. 
Last weekend, I was up in Edinburgh. Um, I'd been invited by a friend of mine called Simon, who um, many of you, some of you will know him, Simon Schofield, who was at Warrington Baptist, who's now ministering up in Edinburgh. And it was their church anniversary weekend, and he invited me to go up for a preach, to preach up there. So I went up on the train, and I booked a train ticket, and I'm pleased, I'm, I'm made happy by very simple things in life. But I booked my ticket, and I got first class for the price of normal class. Now, that to me just, just makes me feel wonderful. I'm sat there with a free cup of coffee, and you think I'd been given liquid gold. You know, it's that kind of thing. So the trip up there was great. The trip back was not. I hadn't managed to book first class. So I just went in a normal carriage. And um, I went to the seat that I'd booked, and I didn't like the look of it. it. It just was looking out onto a bit of plastic, not out of a window. And the train at that point was empty. So I thought, oh, I'll sit a couple of rows back next to the window. The train remained empty till the next stop, when an orchestra got on. (laughs) I don't know if there was the same band that was playing at the beginning, but it was this full orchestra got on with instruments and everything. And I suddenly realized that I was sat in somebody else's seat. So I wander up the train to find the seat I was meant to be sat in, to find two ladies were sat in my seat. One had booked the seat next to me, And the other was this very smiley, elegant, mature lady. That's the nicest way I can think of describing her. And she she said to me, oh, oh, am I sat in your seat? And I sort of said, well, yeah, you are. But I thought, I can't ask you to move. I just can't ask you. She'd be stood up. So I thought, okay, I'll do the the honorable thing. I will stand here with my case, with my coat over my arm, and I will stand there. She said, don't worry, I'm only getting off at the next station, which was Carlisle. So I stood there for an hour and a half, holding things. And by the end of it, my arms were giving up the will to live. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you can feel the muscles and the tendons aching in your arms. I believe I did the right thing there. She believed I did the right thing, most certainly. But you know, even sometimes when you do the right thing in a situation, there are unintended consequences. How much more is that true when you do the wrong thing and things start to spiral And things start to go horribly, horribly wrong. What was happening in Israel and Judah was that they had been told to follow God's ways. They had been called into a covenant relationship. God was remaining faithful to them, but they had become a faithless people. They were not living as God had commanded them to. Instead, they were living in a different way. They were failing to love God. They were failing to love each other. The poor were being overlooked. The social justice of the law of Moses had been abandoned, and it had made way for corruption. If you've got the Bible there, just flip back to chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. I'll just read it. It says, Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil in their beds. At morning's light, they carry it out, because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. Therefore, says the Lord, I am planning disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of calamity. See, rather than wanting God's heart for people, actually what the people of Israel and Judah were doing was defrauding, coveting, wanting more for themselves. And it did end in disaster. History will tell us that in 722, Samaria in the northern kingdom was overrun by the Assyrians and the nation was totally destroyed, never to rise again. About 150 years later, in 587, 
Judah was also conquered. They had failed to live as God wanted them to live. But Judah is taken into exile, to Babylon. And it talks about the birth pains in, in these verses, of the pain of being uprooted as refugees from your own nation, taken to somewhere else, controlled and almost owned by another country. But if you read the prophets, if you read Micah, if you read Amos or Hosea or some of the other prophets at this time, they keep reiterating that this coming exile is a result of sin and disobedience. You see, what was going on in Judah and in the temple was that outward worship was still going on. It was still looking okay for um, some of this time. But actually in Amos 5, it says, Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. It's easy to do outward stuff in life, isn't it? You know, I could relatively easily change my appearance so that I would become unrecognizable. I could grow a big Greek Orthodox beard. I could wear very different clothes. And you probably wouldn't recognize me. But to change my character is a whole different ballgame. To change what is going on inside is totally different. You know, if you're decorating your house and you suddenly find there's a damp patch on the wall, you can get that special paint that you paint over it and it'll make it not show. It's a lot harder to find the root cause of what's causing it and to get to the source of the problem. It's a lot easier to sing a song about surrendering to God's will and to to praise and to sing all these nice words than it is to actually do it in our heart and that to then have an evidence trail in our lives that points to who we are. So the result of sin in Israel and Judah was that they were sent into exile. It's deportation. But it's when they're there, when, if you like, the judgment comes, when they're separated from the presence of God in the temple, that they start to realize. And if you look at the book of Lamentations, we looked at that a few months ago, you will see the pain and the anguish that they start to go through as they, as they start to repent before God. Or you look at the Psalms, you know, by the rivers of Babylon, I sat down and wept as we remembered Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And it says their disobedience leads to judgment, that actually they realize, they realize what has happened. You know, God's judgment is very real. It's not something as Christians I think we particularly find easy to talk about. But if you're reading the prophets, you come face to face with it time and time again. God simply cannot look at human sin because of his holiness and say, that's okay. You just can't do it. You know, as human beings, I don't know if you ever find yourself wanting justice. Have you ever found yourself walking down the road and a car suddenly screams past you at some immense speed? And you turn to the person you're walking with and say, where are the police when we need them? And you find yourself sort of railing inside you, where is justice? when it needs to take place. Or perhaps you're there and you put the news on and you see images of war or you see images of of people who perhaps are are voiceless victims of some tragedy. Or you see the plight of refugees and you say, where is the justice? Where does this wrong going to have to be reckoned with? You know, God's heart breaks over human sin. God's heart breaks when we fail to be the people that he has called us to be. And the Bible tells us that God will preside over the judgment of sin. There is the judgment of exile here. The foreshadowing 
of that last day when God will come and judge the living and the dead. Revelation 20, verse 12 to 13. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and the death was given up, and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. But if that was the message of today, that's pretty hopeless, isn't it? But the good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is that he came, the Son of God came, to take that which we couldn't deal with, to take that judgment upon himself. We should be exiled from God's presence. Yet Jesus takes it on Calvary's hill and welcomes us as the prodigals returning home. Christ took on himself the judgment we face, and if we choose to follow him, we live not in judgment, but we live with redemption, with salvation. The redemption of verse 10 that is glimpsed is actually just a foretaste of all that is to come with Jesus. God's plan is for a holy people, isn't it? God's plan is for a redeemed people, a people who know who we are in Christ Jesus. You know, God has plans for us. And God's plans is to redeem and to rescue when we follow him. So if today, if you don't know that redemption, if you don't know that, that rescue, can I encourage you, when we start this Alpha course, come along, hear more about God's great rescue through Jesus. Third thing we find in here is about freedom. As human beings, we're very easily conquered by other things, other things that aren't often helpful. You may be sat here this morning, and you may not be listening at all. Now, that might be because I'm boring, and in which case I apologize. But it might be because actually you're thinking about work tomorrow. It might be that going through your brain is a whole series of meetings that you've got to have this week. But actually, it's not just this week. It's next week and the week after. And actually, if you're honest with yourself, work has conquered your heart. It's conquered you. It's got a grip on you and it won't let go. Or it might be that actually you wake up in the middle of the night panicking about money. Or you're worried about where the next bill is going to be paid from. Or you're worried about where you're going to invest your money, depending on whether you've got too little or too much. But it's conquering. It's, it's getting a grip of you. Or it might be that it's something totally different. It might be that it's uncontrollable anger that is conquering your heart. Or it might be lust, or it might be some other thing that is doing it. But as human beings, we are very easily conquered by things that don't lead us to God. Verses 11 to 13 of this chapter, there is a a rather strange twist in what will come to pass, what will take place in the future. Judah will be destroyed by Babylonia. Their people taken off into exile, and the land is laid waste, and it's a cause of great sorrow for the people. But then what happens is Babylonia, the one who conquers Judah, finds itself conquered. The conqueror becomes the conquered. And history will tell us that just a few decades after these events, Cyrus, the emperor of the Medes and the Persians, comes in, wipes away the Babylonian Empire, and rules over this huge piece of land from Greece right the way over to India. It's a massive, massive empire. And then um, it's under that kind of rule that actually the Jews start to get a taste of freedom again. 
they will start to be allowed to go back home. And under the ministry of Ezra and Nehemiah, the city of Jerusalem is rebuilt and the temple is rebuilt. But again, it's only going to be partial fulfillment. Because this is only fulfilled fully in Christ. You know, in Christ, that which would conquer us is itself conquered. Romans 6, verse 22. Verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. Make an apology for talking about my dog again. I always seem to be talking about the dog. But here she is, just in case you want a nice picture of her. Ah, oh, doesn't she look lovely? <laughs> there she is, running round limb down. Every day I take the dog for a walk. Every day people from church laugh at me as I walk down the road, struggling with my dog on a lead. It's humiliating. But as soon as I let her off my lead, off a lead, she's as good as gold. She does exactly as she wants, but what she wants to do is be with me. She will run after a squirrel, she'll chase a ball, but she always comes back. She could decide, actually, I'm going to run off and find a more normal family to live with. She could decide, actually, I want to run off and do my own thing. But she decides to commit herself to us. Now, we can read that passage in Romans when it talks about being slaves to God and say, well, how on earth is that freedom? How on earth do we remain unconquered by becoming slaves to God? You know, God always has our best at heart. Always. Following God is not like following those things that would conquer us and grip us inside and tie us up in prison. But it's about being broken of chains so that we can become the people that God originally made us to be. In scripture, we hear about the deep, deep love that the Father has for us. And he wants us to live lives that are not bound by those things that would ultimately destroy us. But that we're set free to live lives in the freedom and holiness that God calls us to live. You know, so often, what often feels like freedom at the beginning ends up in slavery at the end. I don't know if you've ever found that in life, where you go down a particular road and you know it's not right, but you think, I'm free to do this, and then at the end of it, you're enslaved. Jesus has broken that if we will just come to him. Jesus calls us to live in freedom. That which would conquer us in Christ has been defeated. But we are free to choose. We have a choice this morning. We can be slaves to God, or we can re-enslave ourselves to all those other things. See, God has a plan. He has a plan for me and a plan for you, and it's a plan for holiness. It's a plan to walk in freedom and to walk in the kind of life that God calls us to lead. You see, Babylonia didn't know what was going to come. Didn't know what was happening. Look at verse 12. They do not know the thoughts of the Lord. Do you know the thoughts of the Lord over your life this morning? Do we know these amazing plans that God has for us? Over the summer, um, when Claire and I were on sabbatical, we, we took the opportunity to go around a, a whole load of different churches, really, from all kinds of different traditions and streams and things. And it was just a really enriching experience. We were in one particular church, and I was listen, we were listening to this preacher, and I can't for the life of me remember who it was, so I'll have to just credit this as anonymous. But they were talking about God's plans um, for your life. 
and saying, actually, when we talk about, you know, what is God's plans for your life, we tend to answer in a very individualistic way. And we tend to think that God is some kind of, um, I don't know, career advisor, rather than the kind of person who actually wants us to come to him. And so, if somebody says to me, what's God's plan for your life? The danger is, I say, well, does he want me to be a plumber or a pediatrician? Does God want me to live in Warrington or Winnipeg? Does God want me to do this or do that? And we we tend to just individualize it. And there is a real danger with that. Now, don't hear me wrong. God does care about all of those things. Passionately, he cares about us. Anyone know where that is? Well, the picture. Does anyone know where the picture is? is, is? It's on Anglesey, you're right. Plas Neweth on Anglesey. It's a painting by an artist called Whistler. And it's enormous. It's about the size of the back wall in church, probably. It's that, it's that kind of size. But it's the most amazing picture because as you walk along, the view changes and you can see different things from one angle that you can't see from another. It's just the most, I don't know how on earth he painted it. But the, as you go in and look at it really close up, the detail is incredible. As you stand back, you see the panorama and it's incredible. Now that is what God does in our lives. He has plans for the big picture, but then as you come into the detail, He has plans for the minute detail as well. He does both. He does both. And so this preacher said, he said this, and this really struck with me. He said, rather than ask God, what are your plans for my life, God? Invert it and ask this. How can my life become part of God's plans? How can my life become part of God's plans and purposes? How can I live according to what God has already revealed? All these things about hope and freedom and redemption that we know God wants for us. And how can God use me to fulfill what he has in mind? Yes, we ask the other questions. Yes, God calls us to ministries. Yes, God calls us to careers and all those kind of things. But how can we be a hope-filled, redeemed person living in freedom? I think one thing we need to do is to pray for faith, to believe that the hope that we've heard about is real. It's easy to say things, isn't it? It's much harder to trust those things that we say. Second thing is believing the truth about ourselves and our desperate need of a saviour. You know, we cannot fix those things that would conquer us on our own without Jesus. It's only with Christ that we can do those things because he's died for us and forgiven us. And walking in freedom. You know, you may be here today and you may be being conquered by something. Can I encourage you this morning to to bring that to the foot of the cross and to ask Jesus again to bring freedom and release in your life. I can't answer the question that we asked at the beginning, what plans does God have for you in the particular sense? I don't know what role God is calling you to do. But I can answer it from God's viewpoint, from what we see in Micah. And it involves some of these things. A hope-filled, redeemed, and free life. Are we walking in that as individuals? Are we walking in that kind of life as a church? Let's just spend a moment in quiet, and then I'll lead us in prayer. Let's pray.
just everything to make you his own. God wants just you. Yes, no one else will do. Listen to him call you by name. You were in his plan before the world began. And he longs that you live your life for him. He knows the power of sin, the struggles that you have within. His love just longs to set you free. And as you open up your heart and give to him every part, He'll make you all you long to be. God wants just you. Yes, no one else will do. Listen to him call you by name. You were in his plan before the world began. And he longs. That you live your life for him. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. The result is eternal life. Lord, we thank you for that hope. Thank you for the the calling you have placed through Christ. We're sorry for the times that we fail you. Lord, would you restore us this morning? just in the quietness as well. I'll spend a moment thinking perhaps of those in our, in our fellowship at the moment who, who are in need, who do need a special touch from the Lord. Think of those who've come down the prayer chain this week, such as Jean, Marion. Lord, we give you thanks that Andrew is here today after suffering quite a lot of pain and seeing an answer to prayer where you've restored and brought him back. Lord, we thank you that that is evidence that you have good things for us. You have plans for us. So just as we respond to the Lord in in song, maybe today that actually there are things that are conquering. There are things that in your own life you need to to bring before the Lord for for the Lord's plan to be worked out in your your life. Can I just encourage you as, as we sing, as we worship in song, to spend the next few minutes just being in that place of doing business with the Lord.